If you're looking at class one to three river paddling, I have a hard time believing that there's a more fun way to travel down the river than on a stand-up paddleboard. I mean, we can all agree that it's not the best vessel for the hardest white water out there, but in terms of the easier to moderate river sections, it's pretty amazing. And that's what I want. I want to see, I just want to see more people standing, standing than sitting. Thursday, May 14th, 2020. Sup everyone, I'm Paul Clark. Sup Paul, welcome back to the podcast. I am no longer in the southeast. I've returned home to the Pacific Northwest. In the next week, I plan on meeting with the paddling yogini, Lindsay Lambert, and heading over to the Wenatchee River to paddle with my buddy, Alan Pace. If you're familiar with this podcast or my YouTube channels, you know both those names. But in this episode, we're heading to Reno, Nevada to meet Davide Sartoni. He's not limited to that location. He's not limited to the Truckee River or his home river in Northern California, the South Fork of the American. He travels to Mexico, to Costa Rica, to Europe to paddle on rivers on a paddleboard. He's started to work with outfitters to do raft support trips. Really interesting guy. I think you're going to like this episode. We're learning a little bit about his background and how he's become the river sup guy, offering clinics on a board and those multi-day raft support trips and those fantastic destinations like the Socha River in Europe. Without further ado, Davide Sartoni. Davide Sartoni, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Good to see you, my friend. Where are you at? Uh, I'm actually at my house uh, in Reno, Nevada. I just got up, made myself a smoothie, and here I'm chatting with you. How are the flows of the Truckee River? You know, in town right now, it's uh, it's an okay flow. It's not as big as it's been. Um, as the last couple of years, we've had some pretty good uh, snow. Uh, this year, it wasn't as good as it has been, but good enough to paddle. We have about 1,200 CFS uh, flowing through flowing through the city, so the the parks are in uh, full value right now. When I first met you uh, a few years ago now, you didn't have any issues with spatial distancing on the, the Truckee River. You were the only guy out on any given day paddling, especially in the off-seasons. The summertime, it's busy with floaters and kayakers and floaters. It's busy with tubers <laughs> and people with bathing suits and fishing rods. So, But in the winter and the off-season, you're, you're still out there in a dry suit uh, surfing and practicing your maneuvers. Uh, first of all, you're getting a name for yourself in, in social media as the guy who is really focused on getting people on the river with some technique and commercially guided trips. For people who don't know you in person, Davide Sartoni is the proper pronunciation of your name. I've heard a variety of ways people uh, butcher your name, but let's confirm Davide is how you pronounce your name. That's correct. Well done. I call you Dave. <laughs> That's what I tell most people to call me, just because it's easier. I've heard so many variations of my name that I, I just got tired of it, and uh, they're just easier for most people. But yes, Davide Sartoni is my official pronunciation. Clearly, yours is an Italian heritage. Talk to, me, talk to us about your heritage. I was born in uh, Florence, Italy, and uh, I lived there until I was uh, in high school. Uh, my mom was uh, uh, an American tourist that took a 17-year uh, vacation. Uh, met some uh, suave Italian guy and ended up staying there for a long time. And then uh, later on, when things didn't work out, she brought me back to the States. And so I've been in the U.S. since 1992 now. 
Um, I feel more as an American than I have an Italian, but as somebody who grew up in two cultures, I feel like you never really are fully part of one. So you could sort of have one foot in one and one foot in, in the other. So um, some have, have told me that I'm, I'm good at compromising as a result of that. <laughs> good at compromising. So that just makes me want to ask what your birth sign is. Uh, Aries, which would not indicate Aries. that I'm good at compromising. <laughs> Uh, and what about uh, training and practice and the repetition of things to be better? Is that an airy sign? I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. Never give up, right? You're out training and rehearsing and improving your paddling skills on a daily basis. And you've done a lot more than paddling in your world. I know you've served in the Navy. You've been a climber. Yeah, since, uh, um, since I left, um, I guess, home when I was 18, I, I went to college for a year and really didn't know what I wanted to do. So uh, I joined the Marines Department of the Navy and I was in the Marines for eight years um, and fortunate enough to have some a solid um, life-shaping experience when I was uh, uh, serving. And uh, one of my uh, posts in the, later in my time in the, in the service was uh, the small base in the Sierra Nevada, the top Marines had to fight in the mountains and I learned to ski, I learned to rock climb, and that became my obsession. So when I left the Corps, um, I got a job working as a mountain guide, and I did that for about seven years. Uh, climbing and skiing were, like I said, my obsession. Uh, and then from there, I transitioned into industrial rope access. Most people have no idea what that is, and it's basically uh, your vehicle to go to work is your ropes. So whether you're cleaning something, installing something, repairing something, inspecting something, using ropes to go to work and so I started as a technician working in the North Sea of, uh, of Europe and then transitioned my way into um, one of the biggest uh, training companies in North America and so now I teach uh, industrial rope access courses full-time. Um, about five years ago um, now, actually it's just like seven years ago now, um, my wife uh, tricked me into a uh, uh, getting on a stand up paddleboard on uh, on Lake Tahoe and uh well, most people, tricked you. He did, yeah. What most people don't know is I actually grew up hating water. I mean, the water part of my training in the military was the scariest part just because I had a bad experience when I was a kid in swimming lessons and uh that sort of like ruined the water experience for me. And so getting you know, getting on a paddleboard and paddling across twenty two miles of Lake Tahoe was pretty scary kind of thought, right? Because uh, you're sort of like in the open water there. Uh, Wait, even hold though on. Never... She tricked you? So your first paddling experience was a 22-mile <laughs> what? No, it wasn't, it wasn't the first time. But, you know, getting getting on the lake and trying to get across the lake was, uh, was a pretty, pretty crazy thought as we got into it, you know? Um, but we did. Um, I loved it. I loved it from the very beginning, um, which is crazy. Uh, I remember telling her, you know, about... 20 minutes after we got on boards that we were going to buy stand-up paddle boards tomorrow, and we did. We did that for about two years or so and started realizing that we wanted to figure out a way to get somewhere with our subs, uh, especially on you know multi-day kind of trips because at the time we were into hiking and backpacking, whether we were on foot or on skis, and I wonder if there's a way to do it on water. And you know, not having any idea, we started researching and came across this uh, trip report from somebody who had uh, paddled the Green 
river through Canyonlands, right outside mm -hmm. Moab. And we thought that would be like really cool and right at our level because the river was, uh, you know, like a swift water river with no rapids. And, uh, you know, contacted a local outfitter and got ourselves some inflatable boards that we could rent and dry bags and strapped all our stuff to the boards. And here we went on a four day Perfect. trip on our own, just my wife and I. And uh, it was pretty early in the season. So aside from a couple of canoeists out there, we didn't, we didn't see anybody else. But the, the feeling... The feeling of being on moving water while standing on sups was like amazing, you know? Yep. With your dry bags tethered to the board, swift water. Oh my gosh, we're doing this. And you haven't really looked back since. We have not. No, we started looking at, you know, well, if we can do this, I wonder what else we could do. And we started finding some rivers that had a little bit more excitement. And quickly realized that we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know what the, the hazards were. We didn't know technique, proper gear, or anything like that. So uh, Jeannie, you know, thought my wife thought it was a, a good idea for us to get some professional instruction. So we were on a road trip through Colorado and Montana and took a class with an outfitter in Colorado. And safe to say that that was one of the funnest experiences of our um, marriage, right? Taking that class together. And it totally changed our world uh, because now, you know, paddling on rivers on stand-up has become sort of like our lifestyle, right? Um, sure. I, I retired all of my climbing equipment and ski equipment and now I, um, I full-time on the river year-round, rain, snow, shine, low water, high water, it doesn't matter. You know, if there's a river nearby, I'm, I'm on it. Uh, and it's become, it's become an obsession, it's become... I don't know, like uh, a life quest in a way. Um, and uh, the involvement with, uh, with the brand has definitely ramped that up. And my quest to build the paddling community here has also created a, a different level of like commitment to it. Because it's just something mm -hmm. that I wasn't really into in my other sports previously. It was sort of like a, an individual uh, kind of uh, endeavor. And now... There's more of a community attraction uh, that has kept me committed to this process, I guess. As a mountain guide, I assume, I assume that you were working for a company, but now as an instructor of river paddleboarding, you are your own brand. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, that transition from just being a river enthusiast to getting certified and instructing people proper technique and how to navigate rivers as, as safely as possible. Yeah, so it's interesting because it literally started with, I want to get on the river and who can I call to go play with me because it's safer to be with somebody else that is a responsible partner. And, uh, and so I decided that, well, I got to figure out a way to grow the community in my area. So on any given day, I have somebody that I can go play with. So it's, it was still about me, right? About me getting out on the river and having fun. And I quickly realized that uh, the barrier to getting more people on the river, at least in my area, is there wasn't a place where people could rent gear. Uh, there wasn't a place where people could learn about the sport or get you know, class or take a clinic with someone. It's interesting because I always think of like California, especially Northern California, as a, as a very trendy place. And for some reason, Riversup was not getting picked up by the local paddling community. I mean, I remember talking to several shops and outfitters and nobody really being interested in, uh, 
in exploring that or going down that path. You know, they thought it was a sort of like a kooky kind of sport, you know, and they didn't want to invest time, energy or resources into it. So um, I decided that, you know, if I wanted to make this work, that I had to kind of take matters into my own hands. And so I started the process of becoming certified uh, and I chose the, uh, the ACA, uh, the American Canoe and Kayak Association, because they had a, um, a river program as part of their certification. And from being a certified mountain guide, I thought that for what I wanted to do, the certification was important. So I chose mm-hmm. them. And uh, one of the things that was interesting is, um, you know, some people might call it a barrier to entry, but they require like a flat water instructor certification first. So I had to, you know, go, go through the hoops of getting certified uh, to be a flat water instructor in order to become certified as a river instructor. And I had no idea what to do about opening a business. So I had to figure out everything, you know, starting with like business plans, you know, licensing and permitting and insurance, all things that I was totally clueless about in many ways because I had never thought that I would own my own business. I always thought that it was going to be too much responsibility, but, you know, I embarked in that endeavor. Um, I've also been looking for partners. Uh, One of the things that um, is uh, um, maybe unique about paddling on the rivers uh, in many places is that uh, you have to have a permit to operate commercially, especially when you're using uh, access, whether it could be like a city park, a county park, state park, national forest, BLM land, uh, you need to be able to apply for a permit through a lot of these services. And in many places, the number of permits available are limited, uh, commercial Mm -hmm. permits. And so one of the things that I discovered is if I can find a a business partner, an outfitter that's reputable and has a permit, then we can partner together and uh, I can provide the service that I want to provide. Uh, and bring down more people as well, if that makes sense. So whether I'm operating locally or whether I'm operating in other parts of the world, I always look for uh, somebody that I like uh, and build a relationship with, with them uh, in order to provide either classes or opportunities for trips. And you've certainly found some of those partners, including doing raft support trips in Idaho and going back to the gates of the Lador. Uh, Tell us a little bit about those, what you've done in the past with uh, commercial rafting outfitters. Yeah, so that's it started with uh, um, a personal trip that I did with some friends. We we joined a music trip uh, on the Middle Fork of the Salmon in Idaho. Uh, and uh, as I was going on the trip, I thought, well, man, this would be awesome if I could find uh, a rafting outfitter that might be interested in offering sub-trips. And so after that trip, I started doing my research, and I found a partner on, uh, on the Maine Salmon, Middle Fork River Expeditions in Idaho that uh, was psyched, and so that was my, my first trip. And then Jeannie and I did a trip in Costa Rica and found the rafting outfitter there, so now I'm running trips in in Costa Rica and recently went to Mexico uh, and found a rafting outfitter in Mexico. So now I'm going to be starting to offer uh, trips uh, in Mexico. And uh, one of the things I found out is that if you have a local outfitter, especially for these multi-day trips that's already established, has all the equipment, the permitting, the infrastructure in place, uh, but they usually are missing is a sub guide or a sub instructor. Uh, they often are missing subs, um, and so I basically uh, will take 
part of, uh, of their allowance for people on a trip and build my own subcomponent within one of their uh, established trips that they already have going on. Um, and it's been great because many of these rivers um, will offer varying conditions. So it's, it's great for somebody who's stepping on a sup on a river for the first time or somebody who's into, you know, building their skills uh, and wants to paddle, you know, up to class three or, or harder uh, whitewater on their stand-up. So uh, it's a great opportunity to bring lots of river sup users together and in some pretty magical destinations, you know, whether you're checking out wolves on the side of the, the main salmon or bears that are, you know, hunting uh, next to the river or whether you're looking at monkeys in Mexico or Costa Rica or some Mayan ruins that are next to uh, the river in these in these jungles. I mean, it's it's an amazing experience to do it from a stand-up paddleboard. Absolutely, it is. the The perspective of of standing or kneeling or lying down or doing a downward dog on a board as you're traveling through a beautiful landscape in control of your own craft is fantastic. Back in the day when I was kicking around the idea of of doing what you're successfully doing now, working with outfitters, doing some clinics, doing some instruction. I always came up with the the, the barrier that outfitters didn't have that in their insurance. They they would quickly throw out the the entire list of why you're not going to go on their trips with them. And one of those big things is managing a group of people on boards they may not, or, or managing a group of people on private crafts that they might not be experienced with. If you're sitting in an inflatable kayak or a dinghy, you could sit and kind of float through rapids. On a board, the the the, the joke, and sometimes it's a pejorative idea of the sport, is that stand up, swim down. How have you been able to convince outfitters that standing on a board is a good way to travel down a river and it could be done safely and manage a group well? That's a good question. Um, interestingly enough, most of the outfitters nowadays have a couple of stand-up boards already in their arsenal. They don't know much about it. They don't know how mm -hmm. to maintain them. They barely know mm -hmm. like what level of PSI to inflate them. They might not have the right leash or the right paddle. And so in many ways, they're still very uneducated about the sport. Um, so when somebody comes in, especially in my case, and has the backing of the certification, there is immediately like an avenue in there, right? Oh, you're, you're certified. Many of their guides may be certified to the same organization that I am. So even though we're not part of the same sport, we speak a similar language. And their respect of the certification sort of is like my, my foot in the door, if that makes sure. sense. Um, so that's, that's a start. And I start talking about, you know, the equipment, uh, some safety precautions that we have in place, uh, pertaining to the equipment. An example might be just having the right leash, uh, on you instead of having the ankle leash that many of these outfitters uh, previously have attached to their, uh, to their subs. Uh, Wait, hold down. on. You don't put your leash around your ankle? <laughs> <laughs> that might be a long conversation for this, uh, for this. <laughs> what? So anyway, you have to just, wear shoes? <laughs> right. Just, just the introduction of the equipment, right? Um, it's, it's already like something that, that perks their interest because they realize pretty quickly that they don't know much about the sport. And maybe it's even a liability to put some of their customers on these crafts that they know little about. Uh, and so having somebody that comes along that knows more about the they do on it uh, and is certified 
and has a plan in place for managing a group, um, they, they get really excited about it. The other thing I've noticed is that the guides, the raft guides, are super stoked. Uh, they're intrigued about the sport. Uh, I've, I've had many occasions where we might pull off to the side and uh, the group is going out for like a side hike and the guides are staying back to, uh, uh, to guard the, the rafts and they all want to get on the stand-up boards. And uh, many of them are like really good athletes and uh, I just have to say something and they just do it. You know, they're like the perfect student in many ways. And their <laughs> excitement about uh, the sport helps out on a trip like that because... Uh, they're super stoked to help get people off and on the rafts, you know, on sections that they may want to paddle or that might be over over their level. And uh, uh, because they're so good at rigging, it's really easy to be able to manage that, right? Once they understand, you know, how the sub gets strapped onto the, the raft and uh, the easiest way to kind of manage the group, they're like unbelievably helpful. And so... By myself, with the assistance of the guys that are on the, uh, already on the trip that are manning the rafts, um, it's been really easy to manage groups. That's awesome, and I love the, the articulation that you have with the certification and the, the going through the equipment that's used. Maybe I just wasn't patient enough. Maybe I was just so focused on the, the, the Paul show that I, I gave up and, 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 and moved on to, to other things, solo trips and, and, and media acquisition with that. We went to Europe last year together. You were the, the impetus behind me thinking about the Socha River and Slovenia and being a part of, of your trip there has really changed my perspective of group trips. Before then, like, well, you, you know me well enough. I'm kind of a, I wing things and, and do things on my own. And I never wanted to be a guide. I did so many years as a backcountry ski guide and a sea kayak guide. The last thing I ever wanted to do was wash dishes for anyone. So I kind of assumed that any any organized trip would be guided, followed my lead, do this. We're going to eat dinner at one time. The, the guides are going to wash the dishes. And I just wasn't into it. But your trip, your trip made me realize that uh, an organized trip doesn't need to be a group of lemmings following one leader. It was a group of people who had similar enthusiasms and wanted to explore. So thank you so much for that European trip. And I hope after all of this COVID dark times that you were able to get back to Europe. I know in June you were supposed to go this year. Where's, where's the planning for that now? Have you uh, adapted to COVID? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the Europe trips are all postponed at the moment. You know, um, I, my father still lives in Italy, so I, I try to make it out there uh, every year to see him and see the family. And um, because, you know, paddling on rivers is my, current obsession, then uh, I try to pair up uh, seeing family with also uh, some type of uh, a paddling trip. I mean, I had a pretty awesome trip planned this year. You know, I was, was going to start with a, a river festival in southern France and the Durance, Durance River and then a, a week in Slovenia. And then after some time with family ending on uh, the Grand Canyon of Europe in Montenegro, you know, so uh, lots of stuff. I mean, it's, it's still going to happen. It's just a matter of of when, whether it's going to happen later this year or uh, or next year, but uh, those those events are still going to be in my in my timeline in the future. One one other thing, you know, it's it's interesting what you mentioned about the style of trip because I try to organize 
two different styles of trips when I organize trips. And uh, one of them is, you know, the more commercially uh, set up trip, which is the one that we were talking about earlier. Um, and then in Europe, I sort of operate on my own. I don't, I don't have an outfitter there that I, that I partner with. And Europe uh, is sort of my, my stomping ground. So I know the area really well. And uh, um, I'm starting another community in Europe really, really well, the paddling community. And um, I have, uh, you know, there's a lot of less than appealing things about social media, but that's one of the things that sort of started this whole endeavor for me in Europe was being able to use social media to bring uh, river enthusiasts together from different countries. Uh, and it started on the Socha River, which is kind of like a very magical place for me uh, in Slovenia. Uh, and now I'm branching out to other parts of Europe as well. But uh, the excitement from the, from the stand-up paddle community is there. And so when I go to Europe, I try to look for people that are sort of their own leaders. Uh, and I try to bring leaders of like similar uh, mindset together so we can have a trip together. But at the same time, we have the ability to express our own wants and needs in the trip, right? Sure. Uh, so we get to decide as a group, what do we want to do on, on every day? And if somebody in the group wants to do something different, you know, we, we try to make it uh, work so that everybody gets out of the trip what they, what they want, you know? Uh, and it's worked out really well. And it's brought some pretty cool people, uh, people together, you know, having you and Connell on that last trip, uh, having Louise and Scott, you know, and, uh, and Sean coming. I mean, it was, it was just awesome. People from all over the world, you know, uh, really, really cool. So you have people from North Carolina, Oregon, Brisbane, Australia, the United Kingdom, uh, Lake Tahoe, uh, all shaking hands and giving big hugs to, to locals and eating fresh food every day. And we, before this conversation, you confirm that your family is doing as well as they can in Italy. Um, and hopefully your paddling friends are as well. But without talking too much about COVID, how, how do you think this is affecting those communities where very close-knit groups are no longer able to be close-knit because of a global pandemic? I mean, it's, it's hard, right? Because, excuse me, I mean, uh, the Italian culture is so, I mean, you're living usually three generations in the same household, right? You got, you know, grandkids, parents, and grandparents all living in the same, in the same household. You know, you're going, you're going out to the, your favorite markets, you know, like every day. So you're probably visiting four different markets and you're, you're seeing the same people there, you know, and you're shaking hands, kissing on the cheeks, so... Uh, the culture is so close that, I mean, it's, it's a change in light in life, right? And uh, um, I think especially for the older generation, it's got to be incredibly hard to do. And the younger generation, you know, is already spending a lot of, a lot of their time in the, the virtual world, so it's not as hard. But for the older generation, it's got to be gut-wrenching, right, um, to, be, to not have that. Yeah, hopefully the COVID isn't going to change that human connection. How is, how is social media um, helping your business grow? And, and how are you spreading the word through content creation? Um, well, social media, I mean, Facebook predominantly now. I haven't branched out to some of the other, um, the other platforms yet. But social media has been uh, the way that I promote what I do. Um, it used to be, you know, kind of like a a once a week, once every other week kind of thing where I would post something about a cool trip that I did or a cool session on the river. And uh, uh, lately, especially since 
the pandemic started, I've been focusing more on trying to find topics uh, and ideas to create engagement and discussion within the paddling community. Um, different parts of the United States, I've seen this, but also in Europe, is the sport is developing in different ways in different parts of the country and in different parts of the world. And in many ways, unless there's a, a festival or some type of event that's bringing people together, uh, some of these ideas, concepts, techniques are not really being shared. And so they're developing sort of in their own independent, independent vacuums. And so I want to see more of that. I want to see more of people sharing their, their ideas, thoughts, tricks, whatever they are. And uh, ideally tricks. sharing it. More tricks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ideally sharing it without judgment, right? Because it's pretty easy for folks to judge something that they don't agree with or something that they don't understand. And so somebody could argue that's one of the, the negative aspects of social media, right, is that for some people, you can just take the filter off and you can speak or write uh, without a filter when you're making comments. So that's one of the things that I don't appreciate about social media. But I try to create positive communication and conversation between people. And I've been doing that by, you know, finding a picture or a topic or a, a small video that's more related to an educational component, uh, whether it might be a specific paddle stroke uh, or equipment you might want to take on the river um, and then trying to frame it so that there's an educational piece to it. So I'm sharing information, but also asking for input, uh, especially yeah. in things that maybe I'm not as versed about, you know, like uh, uh, something that I might not be as versed about is uh, how to rig your own sup for a multi-day trip because I just haven't done as much of that uh, on a river. So uh, I might post something related to that, but try to draw in people like yourself or, or Retta from Canada, right, that have done more of that, uh, or Bradley from Colorado, right, to be able to share some of their, their thoughts, ideas, because I, I see that there's a lot of new people that are getting into the sport and they're looking for information. There isn't a book, a good book published out there uh, that they can find information uh, in. Even an organization like the one that I'm certified doesn't have a lot of content out there that people can read about the sport. And so I see social media as a great avenue for folks to be able to, uh, to get information. And it doesn't have to be, you know, like a 200-page book that they're looking for, but an article, a blog, a comment, something that's going to spark their interest and create more desire for, for research you know, into that particular, in particular topic. So that's what I'm trying to do now, is uh, I'm trying to put out a post every day uh, and trying to create as much engagement and, uh, and conversation as I can. I know there's a lot of people out there that unfortunately can't get out on the river right now, and I'm hoping that you know, those posts, these podcasts that you're putting together are actually helping keep the stoke alive and create additional stoke for folks that are getting into the sport and want to know more about it. The key to success is engagement. You're growing an audience through engagement. And you mentioned Rita Boychuk and Bradley Hilton. Both of those uh, individuals have been guests on my podcast. And both have a very different perspective of, of life and paddling and geography. So the more perspective you have, the, the, the more interesting the sport becomes. The, the people who are purists and say there's only one way, well, they, uh, they tend to get isolated. As a instructor, who are interested in taking classes? Who are the next generation of river paddlers on boards? 
Great question, Paul. It's actually something that I've been trying to figure out since I opened my school. And my, my initial um, vision of who was going to take my classes are, you know, 20 to 30 year old, um, sort of like adrenaline seeking, uh, based on my um, assessment of people that are good at competitions, you know, river festivals and compete at many of the events. I thought it would be, you know, very male dominated group. Um, and I've been blown away that I was way off on my assessment of who was going to be my uh, average student. You know, the numbers that I ran on, uh, uh, on my clients and customers for classes and trips. Youngest person was 42 years old, aside from a couple of teenagers that took classes with their parents. Um, as old as 73. Uh, and uh, a two to one uh, women to men ratio. Um, and I can only speak for my area in Northern California and Northern Nevada, but it seems like that's, at least in this area, the people that are interested in the lesson uh, component, right? So 40s and 50s fit. Um, many of them are coming in from either a flat water sup background or uh, a kayaking background, but the majority has been flat water sup. And many, many of them really proficient uh, flat water suppers that might be also doing some downwinding, maybe some surfing in the ocean, uh, and they've realized that you know you can take a, a sup on the river, and they want to know how to do it. Have you linked in with any outfitters to uh, certify yourself or any of your clients into swift water um, rescue skills, and also just other types of of, of river specific? regardless if it's a boat or a board type of, of river training? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it was actually in the works for this season and things that have been on hold right now just because of the, the situation that we're in uh, worldwide. Um, there's, a, there's an outfitter that I respect in the area that provides swift water certification, swift water rescue certification. Mm -hmm. um, and their, their, their brand is actually known worldwide and um, they actually have a curriculum that they've put together for sub-specific uh, river oh, rescue classes. And they just haven't been able to put it in play because there just wasn't a sub-community that was interested in that. Well, I'm the link to the sub-community on the river now and so I'm partnering with them to uh, hopefully start providing that either later this season or or next season. Because one of the things I, I found for myself taking these river rescue classes is although there's some great content in there, um, I find myself using almost none of it uh, during my sub trips. And um, I can't say that I do a, a full rescue every trip that I go out, but pretty often, and it's often not just suppers, uh, it might be a kayaker that's swimming uh, that needs uh, help, dog that's falling out of a of a raft or something like that. And most of the skills that I've used on the many rescues that I've conducted on the river are things that typically are not covered in these uh, river rescue classes, you know. And that's something that I want for my community is I want a class that's actually going to give them, you know, the tools that they're going to use 95% of the time on the river and for them to get proficient with it. We have a few more questions before we were wrapping up. And one of those questions is, how do you convince diehard boaters that a paddleboard is is a proper vehicle for some river touring. 
Great question. Um, I, rem I, re I remember going to um, my first river festival in California, organized by a group of, uh, of kayakers and uh, showing up for the slalom um, practice that they were going to have before the slalom race. And they weren't even sure that if they were going to let me down the slalom course because they had never seen somebody going down the river on a stand-up board. And um, they had a, a clinic that they were running for some of their beginning slalom participants. And um, I jumped in on the clinic and I was able to do everything that um, the people in the group could do. And then as they progressed to a harder part of the course, I, I did as well. And um, I basically showed them um, that, you know, this was something that could be done. And so I think by um, providing an example to them, right? So if you can go down the river and show them what you're capable of doing, um, that sort of lends to that, right? You, you gain acceptance within that group. I think one of the things we also need to remember, though, is that just because you know how to go down the river safely on a stand-up, it doesn't mean that everybody that shows up at the river with a stand-up board can do that. So it's important to remind them that, that they need to assess that person, just like any other river paddler that they want to go out with before they embark on something that might be over their level of ability. Sure, and you're doing a really good job of, of modeling proper river behavior, uh, river technique, being certified, and you also look like a whitewater kayaker. You have the helmet, you have the, the proper insulation, you have shoes, you're wearing a leash in a relatively as safe as possible manner above your waist with a quick release mechanism, and you carry a throw rope. And I think walking the walk is a big way of, of, of proving to those people. Um, I remember stories of Dan Gavir talking about uh, bringing some of the biggest names of, of SUP to the river and how they refused to wear shoes and, you know, ankle leashes and were very talented but had no river experience. And Dan was able to really convince them that even though this is still paddleboarding, it's a completely different environment and requires different gear. So, and I think you're doing a great job in, in, in highlighting uh, those differences between environments and embracing the fact that river travel requires proper river gear. As we're wrapping up, what is your magic ball prediction for the future of river paddleboarding? Well, I can't speak for the sport as a whole, but I can speak for what I'm trying to create in my area, in my community. And one of the big goals that I have is on any given day, I want to show up on my home river in California, the American River, and I want to see more people standing than sitting or kneeling on something that's not a sup. Um, and uh, I saw that transition happening on Lake Tahoe, and I'm, I'm trying to create that same transition on the river. And uh, I think one of the, the biggest barriers to that is people don't realize how accessible the sport is, uh, nor uh, do they realize that it's really about how much excitement you want out of it. Right? You can make it as chill or as crazy as you want based on the river that you decide to, to paddle down. And so I think as people um, realize the accessibility of it, more people are going to get into it. Because if you're looking at class one to three river paddling, I have a hard time believing that there's a more fun way to travel down the river than on a stand-up paddleboard. I mean, we can all agree that it's not the best vessel for the hardest white water out there, but in terms of the easier to moderate river sections, it's pretty amazing. 
And that's what I want. I want to see, I just want to see more people standing, standing than sitting. And then the other, the other big piece that I'm trying to create that I'm, that I'm hoping for the future of the sport um, is uh, to bring people together in different parts of the world so they can experience what other paddling communities are, are putting together, right? And, and that's one of the, the, big, the big focus of some of my trips is to try to bring people together from different paddling communities. I think you're doing a fantastic job. Thank you for that. I think with that, we're going to wrap up. Um, is there any, uh, anything you want to say as, as, a, as a conclusion? Um, I guess it pertains some to the sport, but maybe to the, the current situation worldwide. Um, is I, I heard this somewhere on social media recently that sometimes you have to get sick before you get better. And so I'm kind of curious to see what will happen, you know, moving forward. And although there's been a lot of deaths and sickness going around the world, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we're going to find some, some strengths uh, and some realizations out of the, the situation that we're in. And uh, I can't wait to see what those are. Thank you for that positive message at the end. Davide Sartoni, ciao. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you, my friend.